you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 987. As I sit here in a rain-soaked Los Angeles, <laughs> complaining about rain when other parts of the country... Uh, basically, you need a can opener to get into your cars uh, because of the sheets of ice that you are buried under. We're spoiled in Los Angeles when it comes to weather. I admit that doesn't take you very long to live here before you lose any resistance to the elements. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I apologize. I don't know why I have to apologize to you. I just feel bad for going, ah, it's raining again. Oh, man. What? I have to wear a light zip-up hoodie in February? What the H? Uh, so, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, hey, if you're going to be in Brea, California next weekend, Feb 22 and 23, I'm performing at the Brea Improv. Um, doing four shows there. Tickets are available at improv.com slash Brea. Uh, and then other dates, but let's just worry about next weekend for now. So I'll be there um, next weekend. And now, dear listeners, let us turn our attention to the ID10T Community Corkboard. A place for you, the ID10T community, to share a thing that you're making or have made or want to make. Or a friend that you have or a thing that you heard of that you like. Um, events at ID10T.com is the email for that to get your thing uh, mentioned on the podcast. Uh, the first one is a friend of mine, uh, a very cool entrepreneurial and super smart lady named Remy Brixton, who has started a podcast called Skin in the Game. And it is available on iTunes, so go get it there because that's probably where you, where you get your podcast, I'm going to guess. Uh, Skin in the Game is each week... Freck Beauty founder Remy Brixton sits down to discuss entrepreneurship and beauty, interview badasses, and chat about anything else she thinks is inspiring. Uh, Remy went to school for interior design, so she learned everything she knows about growing a business from her mentors and Google University. She started Skin in the Game to motivate and inspire listeners that may want to start a business of their own. Uh, in the future, Remy wants to start a venture capital firm that focuses on seed funding for women-owned businesses, and she's on a mission to find out exactly what gives successful founders their spark. While Skin in the Game focuses primarily on business and beauty, Remy also mentioned she plans to have some episodes that are just whatever she's into at any given moment. For example, she has an upcoming interview with a man who survived a shark attack last year. Damn! Check out Skin in the Game uh, if you're into all things startups, business growth, and uh, and maybe shark attacks. Uh, you can find Remy on Instagram at Freck, F-R-E-C-K, or FreckBeauty.com. Nice job, Remy. 
Also, Santiago writes, I'm doing a magic show on February 23rd in downtown Santa Cruz, and my brother suggested I contact you about the possibility of my show being talked about on your show. Mission accomplished. Your brother is right. The show is called In Restless Dreams, and it's an evening of magic and storytelling about my life learning magic from when I was a kid to studying with masters in Las Vegas. Uh, it's a family-friendly show happening on Feb 23 at the Santa Cruz Performing Arts Center. Information and tickets can be found at santiagosmagic.com. This episode is Darren Lynn Bowsman. Uh, Darren was, if you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, Darren was on very early in the run of the podcast. Darren is a horror director. He's, he directed Saw 234. He also directed uh, Repo the Genetic Opera. And he has a new film out called St. Agatha, which is in theaters and on demand um, as of now. So it's out there. And, uh, you know, it's I can't believe we've been doing the show for this, like, nine years. Nine friggin' years. And uh, and just, like, that much of a, a person's career. He's, he's made, like... 13 movies <laughs> not in the nine years but around around there so it was really great to have darren back on he's such a sweet man and uh and a great director and a collector of stuff and uh, so we talk a lot about about collecting and horror and also you know the parents who are into collecting and horror like at what age do you expose your kids which is something that lydia and i of course someday will have to be trying to think about uh but also you know a lot about following passions and whatnot so thanks to darren lynn bowsman for coming back on uh this is the id10t podcast number 987 and now it is time that we shall roll the thing Darren and I were just talking about how he bought old mint because I have coasters that are like that look like cartridges from the old NES system. Yeah, and uh, does he like the NES games? No. <laughs> I mean, wait, he's only he's only four years old, so oh, okay, 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 concerning uh, taste and anything. But uh, we also have you know Xbox and PlayStation, so he can tell the difference. In Don't graphics. show him those first. That's the thing; like, you can't. You can't show him Red Dead. You don't lead with Red, Red Dead, Dead Redemption. Redemption. You like you have to lead with Excite Bike. I know. And then and then go, and then a week later go. Oh, this just came out. Oh my god! You know, yeah, it's like I you know. gotta you gotta build up. It's it's difficult to go back because we have good feelings about these old games because they're retro to us. But you know what? I wish I never would have done is is go back and play them because my memories are so fond. I have such great <laughs> memories of like Metroid or Rygar or Castlevania, and then you play it and you're like, after ten minutes, I'm I'm kind of kind of over it it's just uh it's the same action over and over and over again yes but when you were a kid you had never seen anything no, like so that it, before it so it was the yeah. biggest deal ever i'm the biggest deal ever for me is that you're the first person to be in the new podcast studio oh my god i'm gonna geek out for a second because uh your your taste in art and wallpaper and, and uh, furnishing <laughs> is uh it's made after my own heart uh, this is this is fantastic see this is we we had been recording Ever since At Midnight Rap, we used to record them in At Midnight, which is the Comedy Central show I used yeah. to do. And when we wrapped that, for like, gosh, a year and a half maybe, we were doing them at my house. And 
the only unfortunate thing about you not coming to my house is you in particular, so you'll have to come separately, yeah. see my wife's horror movie prop collection. Oh my god. Which is just strewn all throughout the house. So that's the only thing you're missing by not by not coming there. My wife is in a battle. It's literally causing me to sleep in the guest house quite a few nights because I refuse to cave on it. Is a so she has the entire house and I have one room. I have my office. And my office is just full of horror memorabilia. And as we've had, now we have our second kid and they've gotten older, all my horror stuff has moved into my office. Now my office is like floor to ceiling props and monsters and, and all of this. And now my son is of an age that he used to not be scared of it because he was too young. Now he's at an age that he walks in and he's scared. So she wants me to get rid of all the saw stuff. And I have like like the, the Billy doll and all of these things. And I'm like, no, this is the only room of mine that I have in this house. Uh, but we now have a daughter and uh, she was in my office the other day and I actually saw the fear in her face and I was like, okay, maybe I should move some of this. You know what though? That's how they get used to it. I know. That's what I told her. Uh, I'm maybe I'm a horrible parent because I let my son maybe watch movies that are a little too adult for him. But (laughs) you know what? My dad did that for me and it, it made me, I don't want to say more ballsy, but I wasn't scared. Like as a kid, I was not scared of certain things. But if you... I just feel like if you direct three Saw movies, it was three, yeah, right? Two yeah, for four? Yeah. You should get a pass. I know. That's what I told her. And I was like, these props built this house. If, so you, did, if you did Repo the Genetic Opera, you I should know. get a pass. Uh, there was a funny, so that's one of them. So one of the more, it's it's a small prop, but it's, it's one of the more gross ones is I have a spinal cord that was used in Repo that was ripped out of a person. <laughs> and all the, all the like gross tendrils and things are still on it. And so I did all these movies in Toronto and I always had to get the props back over to the United States. And I remember with Repo, uh, I I took it as a carry-on in a uh, FedEx tube, and it was wrapped up in oh uh, Jesus, it was wrapped up in like bubble wrap. And I remember going through the uh, customs, and they made me unwrap it and take it out. And you have these, I have a picture, and these like three guys holding the spinal cord, and they just looked at me and like, do you want to explain what this is? And I'm like, it's, it's from a movie. It's from a movie. Yeah. That I did. What's it called? Uh, it's, it sounds made yeah. up. Uh, Repo. Repo the Genetic Opera. I, opera. Yeah. It's a genetic opera. That's uh, not a real thing. I, I got stopped as well when uh, I did, and saw too, there's this great scene where this, this girl falls in the pit of hypodermic needles. And uh, I knew shooting it, this is going to be a cool scene. So I took just bags and bags of the hypodermic needles because we had tens of thousands and they're covered in blood and they look rusty. <laughs> and I, I put them in a, in a box and I shipped them back to the United States. It took about a year for me to actually get the box. Uh, we had to send letters. We had to send pictures from the movie to say this is from the movie. Uh, so, yeah, I've had some good trying to cross the These board. These are really these, clever so. serial killers. They came up with this whole movie exactly. ruse. Exactly. Well, that's sort of the... I mean, you know, when you're when you're a collector, these are things that you have to... Yeah. Like, these are just hurdles that you have to jump through. Yeah. Because it is ultimately... You know, it's easy for us to think like, oh, everyone does shit like this, but it's really just a handful. No, it is. There's not that many. There's not that many. Well, as I've gotten older, I've started to collect occult memorabilia. And so I go to antique stores or um, you go, you know, go on eBay a lot. And I love like old texts, like old uh, secret society uh, booklets, documents, old uh, Ouija boards, old uh, ESP games from like, uh, you know, the 1920s, 30s, things like that. And so now I'm, I'm starting to collect and amass like this just old ritualistic crystal. It looks cool. And it's, it's, I love things back in that day because it's, it didn't rely on cheap plastic. It wasn't right. just like you could touch it and there was weight to it and there was artistry to it. Uh, and so, yeah, my whole house is just full of that stuff. Yeah. Before the time of mass production, yeah. I mean, mass production kills everything. However, I would also argue that. Because we have mass-produced plastic things, it makes us appreciate and seek out the handmade 
you know, like things that are really um, authentic and were made by, you know, like probably world-class sculptors who as a side gig were like, well, I'll make a board game just to pay some bills. Yeah, I uh, as I've gotten older now, I, I just turned forty this year, and it's crazy because how my interests have completely shifted from where I was twenty years ago. Uh, I look forward to going antiquing, and that sounds so ridiculous, but like I was on set last year, and I was so excited. All the cast got together, and we went antiquing, and it was it made me very happy. I can tell you the five best antique places in Los Angeles right uh, now. Yeah, gonna... like on week. I mean, you look you if you look around here, you see that. A lot yeah. of my life, people go, where do you find this stuff? And I go, I just, I know the right auctions. I know the right dealers. I know the right places. And I know, you know, and I also know which places are starting to become overpriced. I yeah. know what's too much for something and how to get deals on stuff. When my grandparents passed, uh, there was a estate sale that my dad did at their house. And um, I love books. I just love old books. I love the, the way they feel, the way they smell. And uh, I there was a huge box and it was all my grandparents' books. And they were all selling them for like, and I'm making this number up like 10 cents a book. And I went through and I grabbed the coolest looking ones and they just followed me through middle school, through grade school, through high school. And recently when I was in college, that wasn't that actually recent. It was like 15 years ago. I went through that box and some of the stuff I found in there was insane. We found a, an original copy of Jekyll and Hyde, one of the first prints. Oh my God. Yeah. We found uh, treasure Island. Uh, one of the first editions that ever came out. And it's so crazy because a lot of people throw stuff away thinking this is junk. No one wants this. But for people like me, when you see that, you realize you have a first edition of something. It's uh, it's the equivalent of me opening my Nintendo when I was six years old. I get that excited. Well, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who we were talking about how houses get built. Like how people come in and they'll buy like a cla- an old house yeah, and then completely modernize it inside. I'm like, that shouldn't be allowed. And then what we think we kind of landed on was... That it was people from Europe who were coming over, and to them, a 1928 house is brand new. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they have they have places that are you know hundreds, maybe even a thousand years old. So to yeah. them, it's like yeah, it's fucking. This was a cop in 1928. This was a copy of a structure in my country that was made in the 1600s. Yeah, of course. Fuck you. I'm gonna do what I want with it. So well, major props to your decorations here. Oh, thank uh, you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, now you, but now you got to come to the house to, to the see, house like, the, see, to see the, yeah. real, the, the real treasures. Lydia's got some. She's got uh, she's got the a, a werewolf head from the Howling. She's oh got God. some original Gremlins. She's got uh, she's got the dummy from Dead Silence. Like she's 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 got some good stuff. I went to Joe Dante's house who directed Gremlins, and he had all of these Gremlins around. I literally geeked out. Like I don't geek out a lot, but walking to his house and seeing some of the original Gremlins just uh, made me giddy inside. It's hard not to. Yeah. It's like the first time you ever see a Muppet in person, like oh, a yeah. real Muppet in person, and you yeah. you immediately inexplicably just start crying it is just like it, it something about th- th- that deep in your molecules of being influenced as a child well, going to the Henson studios and seeing all the dark crystal figures oh, that are all amazing like, yeah i mean i uh there's no way to describe it they I, just fucking have skexies just like out. out out i know just sitting in lobbies yeah and, where uh, people work i know it uh it's like why isn't this behind bulletproof glass i know or at my house or at uh, my yeah, house behind exactly, bulletproof glass exactly but then you realize not everyone hears yeah. the word skexies and knows Freaks exactly out, what that is and geeks out about it so maybe that's Maybe that's just for us. Yeah, I think so. But if they wanted to, I don't know, just uh, get, put it on a loaner program for exactly. a while, you know. I think, that, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a great way to teach my kids about these things as well, just have them sitting around <laughs> the house. I tried to show Henry, which is my son, uh, the Dark Crystal. He made it through about 20 minutes and just wasn't having it, which which is a horrible, as a parent, um, 
these shows, these kids shows are mind numbing. And I, I can't, I can't like there's Paw Patrol and Peppa Pig and all of this. And I don't know what they find entertaining about it, but they do. I don't know if it's the colors or the sounds or whatever. And I'm trying to introduce him to things I watched as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I'm revisiting all of these original things. The Secret of Nim, The Dark Crystal, Legend, all of those movies, uh, which when again, when they used, I mean, going to Legend or Dark Crystal, uh, puppets, there's something so much real. There's, it's real. You're, it's tangible. You could touch it. You can see it. It's right there. Right. As opposed to these really bad CGI and things like that they're putting in kids' cartoons. So. It is kind of funny. And CGI in and of itself is an incredible art. And CGI yeah. artists, like really good ones, are amazing. But I also feel like, you know, with so many things in our world becoming digital between digital art and the, the way that we interact digitally and stuff, it's like we're creating this virtual world and it is nice to see, yeah. you know, it is nice to see stuff manifest in the real world because now a lot of kids shows, I'm sure, are, you know, made by committees of scientists who who understand how kids' brains think and learn and maybe that's better for them. But we had what we had yeah. because people didn't think about that stuff. And it, I don't know, it was cool. But the Dark Crystal, yeah. if you're not ready for it, I mean, it is dark. It is. Like, it's not, It's there's nothing really comedic about it. It's right. not particularly funny like there are some fun moments but it's like it's a it's kind of a fucked up movie yeah it is uh he, he dug uh never ending story which is another one of those kind of movies that just as, as a child kind of defined my love for movies and love for fantasy so it's cool getting to rewatch and rediscover these things through the eyes of a child because it reminds you it just reminds you of so much so well when you when your kids are slightly older you can maybe take them to a special effects house and show them how, yeah. like, sh- uh, like teach them the difference between, yeah, like show them the art of it so that they'll appreciate. It. I I think they'll come around. I really do believe he's that they'll too come young. around. He's four. He's not like he's ten or something like that. He's four years old. Yeah. So, so he's, it'll be it'll be fine. Yeah. That's how they learn. I I guess I'm I'm lucky that my wife and I like the exact same stuff, and uh, so there is no. There is no, like, relegate. I, I find that sometimes I'm the one who's like, I don't know if we need to put all this stuff out, which is very surprising to me. I never thought I would be that yeah. person. But, uh, you know, I'm terrified that, you know, maybe it's better in the beginning if your kids are a little afraid of the stuff so they don't go, oh, toy. And you're like, that's an original. Yeah, I know. Please don't touch. He, uh, so there's that Billy doll from the Saw films, which, uh, so I've, I've done this now in every movie I direct. Is I, I actually loan money to the production to buy the props, so I get them when the thing's over with. Mm-hmm. So like when we were doing Saw Three, I knew that, that that at that point the puppet was this iconic thing. So I just paid for it. They had to build new ones, and I said I'm I'm buying it. So I gave them the money. With the variant, it's all my stuff. So I just take it back with me. That is fucking yeah. brilliant. Because uh, you're paying nothing at that point. Because you're not. And the, the reproductions of these things now are you know fifty, sixty thousand dollars. You find them online. The reproductions, like really good ones, and, and screen used ones are just outrageous. So uh, so when I did repo, when I did saw, I just pay for the props or costumes. Some of them, the ones that I want, and take them back with me. But it was it was really bad. The other day, I, I walked in my office. And I see Henry and I hear him and he's talking and he's, he's like, he's in an engaged conversation and I walk in, it was, it was a sight. He's sitting down and Billy, he's pulled off and he's sitting down talking to Billy. And and then I look at him and I was like, Henry, and he he puts his finger up to stop me and he goes, no. And he told me to leave the room. And I was like, I I, I just hope to God this thing is not talking back or I walk in and the Billy's head's in a different position, but he was in there talking to the doll. I mean, to be fair, you are sort of building, um... Uh, the Warren family closet of I am. evil mysteries. Uh, I, I I have there's some tells right now that Henry might be a serial killer. Number one, he eats the burrito from the side like he doesn't go. His name's Henry. His name is Henry. Henry uh, Portrait of a serial killer. Henry Portrait of a serial killer. And I, I, funny funny story. 
Um, Henry Port the Serial Killer was my first movie that I ever saw that truly disturbed and affected me. Uh, saw it way too young. Uh, it was a, I saw it with my brother. Showed me two movies the same weekend. Henry Port the Serial Killer and Cannibal Holocaust, and that snapped. <laughs> it was like the, it was right. Like, How old were you? Like, I don't t- 11, 10, 11. and it was the one-two punch. Uh, but so I've always walked around talking about Henry being the first movie that actually uh, screwed with my head. Ironically, Michael Rooker was the very first friend that I made in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, he's the best. He's he's great. And uh, a funny story about Michael. And I'm, I don't know if I told the story last time, but I'm going to tell it again because it just makes me happy. Um, I got arrested. Uh, I was I was in LA. I don't know, maybe six months. I was working as an assistant at APA uh, on a literary desk, and I had a date. And I was going on this date. It was like my first date in LA. And uh, yeah, you had to wear a suit uh, to the APA. And as I'm leaving, I'm on Sunset Boulevard, and I'm pulling around right in front of the Hustler store, and I'm at a stoplight. And I'm about to pick up the girl who's two blocks away, and I'm trying to change out of this suit into something that's more cool. Uh, and I'm at the stoplight, and I'm changing my clothes, and then I see the lights go on. Now, the lights he didn't stop me because I'm changing my clothes. He stopped me because I ran a stop sign. So my pants are now like two-thirds of the way oh, down. Oh, no. Okay, so the pants are two-thirds of the way down, and the cops I can see walking behind, and I see one approaching from my passenger side, one approaching from my driver's side. And they said, sir, put your hands on the wheel. So now, again, I have, I have pants at least to my knees, um, partial suit, hands are on the wheels, and he, he looks in the thing, and he taps on it, really nice guy, and he goes, sir, why don't we go ahead and start by pulling your pants up? So I pull uh. my pants up. And he goes, sir, we're going to have to ask you to step out of the vehicle. We have a, a car matching your description that was involved in a hit and run. And and I knew I didn't hit a run. So I was like, sure. And I get out of the car. And he goes, sir, do we have your permission to search your vehicle? And, and again, I'm, I'm so young in L.A. I didn't know what I was doing. And I said, sure, because I had nothing to hide. So I'm sitting out on the street. I'm sitting right in front of the Hustler store Friday night. And uh, I hear over the over the radio in the police car, we have a something, something, something. Uh, request a, another car, please. And uh, the guy walks up to me and goes, okay, Mr. Bowsman, we're going to need you to put your hands behind your back. And I was like, what's going on? And I see my trunk open, and the trunk is open. And uh, he, he, I see him pulling things out of my trunk. Now, I'm a, at this point, I, I, before coming to L.A., I was huge into martial arts. I'm a second-degree black belt. Uh, uh, actually, that's wrong. I'm a first-degree decided black belt. Different. Uh, and he's pulling out my karate stuff, and one of the things he's pulling out is nunchucks. Well, they're illegal in California and Maine. Oh, I didn't know that. They're illegal in California and Maine. At least they were in 2000 and... What is it? Was 2002. Uh, and I get arrested. And I get arrested for concealment of a deadly weapon. I get booked. <laughs> Nunchucks! Nunchucks. And now listen, it's better than this. I'm, I'm arrested. Um, I'm, I'm booked into L.A. County Jail. And this was the a Friday and Thanksgiving was that Thursday. Well, the court was closed, obviously, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday. They were open Monday and Tuesday. And if I didn't get the court date, I would have to go to county... Because I would have to wait until the court reopened after Thanksgiving. So I'm literally openly weeping in a jail cell uh, for being arrested for nunchucks. This is all going to come back to Michael Rooker. I ended up getting let go on my own recognizance, which basically I had to sign something and said I would appear in court. Uh, and I leave, I leave jail. Was that girl still waiting on that block for like three days? No, 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 no. That, uh, never, but I did never speak to her again, so it, it did ruin that date. Uh, and the first... The first thing I did when I got out of jail is I drove to Michael Rooker's house because he didn't have a lot of friends. And I go and I'm like, he's like, what happened? I hope he doesn't get mad I'm telling this story. Michael, if, if you're listening, I, I apologize in advance if I shouldn't tell this. And I'm sitting, he's got this Airstream out front of his house. And I'm sitting in his Airstream and he's like, you look like hell. And I was like, I was arrested. And he's like, why were you arrested? And I said, I had nunchucks. 
And he looks at me and he goes, nunchucks? And I'm like, yeah. And he reaches under his seat and he pulls out a gun and he goes, this is how Rooker rolls? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, he owns a gun range, so yeah, I don't so. think that's a surprising, but that is amazing. Uh, <laughs> as I realize, Put those away! I know, I'm like sitting with Henry Porter, a serial killer, and talking about my time in jail. It's great. <laughs> and so, bringing it back to Henry, your son, he's talking to Billy. Talking to Billy. And you, it, are the, is this a coherent conversation? Is Billy no. telling him to do things? No, or? like do evil things. No, but Billy is, the one that I have, is electronic, and so he works off of remote controls. Uh, but the remotes were not on. Uh, but that that just terrifies me. This just this, the picture of walking in to see a four year old kid sitting on the ground with a serial killing doll. I mean, that is pretty terrifying. Yeah, yeah that's pretty terrifying. I know. But yeah. you know, listen, if it uh, if it gives good stories for daddy's films, exactly. Then, you exactly. know, then what's what's the harm? Really, in a small child talking to a possessed doll who may murder his family. Besides the fact that he might not get murdered, but but other than that, it's not like Annabelle. It's not. I mean, we don't have proof that it's killed anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And ultimately, Billy is just a vessel for jigsaw. jigsaw exactly. So exactly. Although, if you see Tobin Bell in a van behind your house, um, and again, another traveling through. So I've done. I've never. I never did convention until this year, and they're doing a lot of saw conventions. And uh, I got asked to go to one, and it was Tobin and Shawnee, who's the killer and Saw 2 through 4, uh, and Costas Mandalore. And they asked me to come, and they were going to do these panels, and they asked if I'd bring the doll. And so obviously, I don't want to ship the doll. I don't want to check the doll. I want to take the doll with me. And uh, so I'm on the plane. Get the doll on. Not a problem. Great. Uh, but on the second on the second go around, they stopped me. So I did like two cities back to back. And I'm, it was funny. I, I'm going through the security thing. I send it through. And there's a huge line of people. And the, they stop. I see it. It stops. And I can see the x-ray of Billy. And this lady goes, sir, we're going to have to ask you to unzip the bag, please. And and then I see her unzip it. And she goes, oh, no. And then, she, then I hear a call. And she calls her supervisor over. And they all look over. And they're all smiling. And they're like, is that? And I'm like, it is. And they take it out. And so, again, on my Instagram, there's a picture of all these TSA old agents smiling, holding up the Billy doll. <laughs> Traveling Hopefully with, yeah. not while terrorists are just I'm walking, walking through, right through. I know, like, I know. Oh, but it's Billy. It's from the, from the movie. And you said, because you see that I have an original Time Bandits poster. Oh, yeah. The Terry Gilliam story. So uh, I had a thing early in my career that uh, I just... Listen, celebrities are people just like everyone else. They're just and like us. They're just like us. And so I started realizing that if I reached out to a celebrity, one out of ten times I would get through to them. And this is before Twitter where you can just tweet someone and they can see your tweet and get back to you. Um, and so I had this weird thing that I wrote down celebrities that made an impact on me. And this is before I started making movies. Um, and I, you know, I put Jim Jarmusch or David Lynch or Tom Waits and I made these lists of people and I, I tried to get to them and I ended up getting through to David Lynch. I ended up getting through to Tom Waits and Tom Waits. I had a, a long conversation with on the phone, which was one of the nicest guys in the world. I talked to Darren Aronofsky on the phone. Oh my uh, God. Uh, Darren Aronofsky is a, is a, is a fun one. Um, I, I was like, how many, I just saw Pi, Requiem for a Dream had not been out yet, but Pi was this insanely impactful film for me. And I looked up Aronofsky, and I looked in Jersey and New York, knowing that there can't be that many Aronofskys. And I got through, and I talked to his grandmother, and and I and she said, "How'd you get this number?" And I said, "I'm so sorry, I was on the phone with Darren, and our phone broke up." And she's like, "Well, let me give you his cell." And so I was called, that true? It was true. And I no, 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 it was not true. I was not Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> you lied to his I, grandmother. I lied to his grandmother. So I call, and I get, I get him, and he, and he, and I was like, "Darren, my name is Darren." He's like, "How did you get this number?" And I said, your grandma. And he said something like, Meemaw? He said something. 
And uh, I was like, I'm so sorry. I just saw Pi and I had to talk to you. You're a huge inspiration. And he spent like 30 minutes on the phone with me. Uh, it was great. So as I started making films, I all, every time I see a movie that I love or is impactful to me, I try to reach out to the filmmaker. And uh, I did a marathon where I watched the, the Terry Gilliam box set and I forgot how amazing Brazil was. It's like it's, it's such a it's just an insanely uh, fantastic awe-inspiring movie. And so I wrote this long email and I found an email that somebody had accidentally forwarded. And it was like, uh, it was like someone did a reply to all instead of a BCC. Yes. Oh. And so I wrote this, I wrote this uh, email to Terry Gilliam and I was like, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And I was very quick. I was like, I just wanted to let you know your movies have, have made me want to be a director. I'm a huge fan, blah, blah, blah. And I send it. And literally like a minute later, I hear a ding, ding. And Terry Gilliam responds back and is like, is this Darren of Repo, the genetic opera Darren? Holy shit. And I was like, I respond back, this is him. And he goes, he says, uh, congratulations, but you you enrage me as my my kid watches your movie uh, on repeat. He said something about, and I was like, oh my God. And I, I, I was in shock. And I was like, I'm having a back and forth conversation with Terry Gilliam about Repo. At that time, everyone hated it. Like it was being destroyed by critics. And uh, it was just great. It was, it was it's just one of those things that, you realize they're just like us. And of I, course. I got an email back from Terry Gilliam. Well, of course. Great. Like, I mean, especially he's a guy that, you know, has, like, he'll make a movie and then it'll be huge, you know, like, and, and people, the critics will love it. And then he'll make a movie and then it doesn't do very well. And then yeah. people are shitty, to you know. So it's like it. everyone understands that process, you know. Everyone understands what that's like and, you know, and knowing... Uh, knowing what it takes to make a movie and direct a movie, I'm sure everyone has empathy for like, oh, if this is a business that you're going into, yeah. then um, uh, then we all need to support each other because it's not well, easy. I find the horror community or the genre community, uh, I don't have any experience, maybe all the genres like this, but the horror, sci-fi, and fantasy world are so supportive of one another. I, was, um, I just got back from doing a movie in Bangkok. And uh, I was there for a few months, and I was looking at a bunch of cinematographers. And uh, one of them I, I saw did a movie with Guillermo years ago that he produced. And, uh, you know, Guillermo is always very friendly if I see him in person. He'll come up, he'll say hello. But it's not like we're very good friends. But he's always very nice and respectful, but I had his email. And so I'm on. I'm, I'm in pre-production, and I just send him an email. And I said, hey, is there, I just have a really quick question. I'm so sorry to bother you. And this is after he's won the Academy Award. And... Uh, Again, two minutes later, what number can I call you at? And so Guillermo calls me on the phone. We have an hour conversation about cinematographers, what the movie I'm shooting. It's like he didn't have to do that. The guy just won an Academy Award, and he's taking time out of his day to call me and just talk. And I found that it's been very – my career has been very uh, amazing about the people that I watch and respect and the conversations and how supportive they are in offering help or advice. And that goes from Guillermo to Rob Zombie to Eli Roth to – it just it's it's uh it's crazy something I never would have thought of coming out here. Yeah, I, I I really do feel like that directors are and and I don't I don't know, I know a good percentage of the genre people yeah. as well. Um, but I find them all to be super personable, super nice, and I and I feel like it's because if you spe- if you elect to go into genre, there's probably something artistic about your heart. Yeah, and so it you're. You know, obviously, people want to make money, but I do feel like it's a group of people that no matter how much money they were making or not, they would still be directing films. Yeah. And that makes them part of a community and engaged in it. And uh, it's a really nice, it's a really nice thing. I, I, I might direct a movie 
not in nice. the not too distant future. So I, I I might be picking your brain. Genre film then horror movie. Yeah, yeah horror nice. movie. I mean that's that's pretty much all Lydia and I watch are that's, horror horror movies. Well, so. it started one of my first like my first real reaching out to a director was Rob Zombie, who you obviously know very well. Uh, I was having a huge issue on Saw Two with the ratings board. I couldn't get an R rating. It kept being NC seventeen, NC seventeen. And uh, again, one of those things where I had his email off a long line of emails, and I picked it off, and I reached out to him. And again, he walked me through how to get the R rating. <laughs> did it work? Like, it did. I got the R rating. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's they're just they're nice guys. They're just people. Well, I think also because it. I mean, I, I guess everything is ultimately this way, but with directing in particular, the learning curve each time you go through the process is so steep. Yeah. Like, I, because, you know, I've known Rob since 1995, since years yeah. before he did Corpses. Yeah. And so, and I was present during that whole process, yeah. and I watched him go through the learning curve the first time, and then the second time, and then the third time, and it just gets it's not i mean some things get easier yeah. obviously some things get a little more complicated but the amount of inf- but the amount of learning and i think most people yeah. just feel like hey if i can save you from any any shred of that i i wish someone had told me this i you know what i've realized is i've done i think i've done <coughs> excuse me 13 films now it doesn't get easier for me in fact if anything it's becoming more difficult and harder that uh and it feels like every movie is film school again um you know and it's because it's never I, I, I feel I was in this insane position that I got to direct three Saw movies. I was 25 years old and I'm doing these huge franchise films. And, and I, I guess in my mind I assumed this was making movies was. This is it. This is how it happens. You, you do a movie. It comes in theaters three months later. It's in 3,000 screens. There's commercials on TV. But then you meet Mr. Independent World and that's not the case. That was, that was, a, that was, a one, that was like a one-off thing. Uh, and so when I started making things like Repo or Mother's Day or this movie I just did, St. Agatha... Uh, you realize that's not how it really works. And it's also technology is updating itself so rapidly. So, um, you know, 15 years ago, to do a visual effects shot, it was a it was a process. And you had to learn these things to do the visual effects shot. Now with technology, people are learning stuff literally in middle school that have more knowledge of how to do green screen replacement <laughs> than I do, who's made 14, 13, 14 films. And so I'm surrounded. It's, you know, as a director, you're supposed to be the leader on set. You're supposed to know what you're doing. And I'm seeing these kids that are half my age that are throwing out terms that I've never heard of that are being like, oh, this, this, and this, and doing things on their iPhone. And I'm like, what the, what, what's happened? Like, I'm the old guy now. But at least, but also I think you, you also are sort of the, you know, it's like you're the captain in a sense. So you hire specialists yeah. who are better at, that's specialized it. things than you are. That's why you hire them. You put you surround yourself. With, you're only as good as who you surround yourself with. So you surround yourself with the best people that make you look good, and that's what I've been very lucky in my career that I've had people that make me look a lot better than I really am. I t- to me, it sounds really fun. If I if I do get to do this, and I do do it, I mean, I'll get to do it. It's just if you know if I if I can talk myself yeah. into thinking that I can do it, but it. To me, it sounds so fun to just make really specialized genre films for like rather than trying to make big commercial stuff to try to get everyone, yeah. just make it for a handful of people that are gonna fucking love it. Well, that, that's that's what I've kind of based my career on. Um, you know, Repo, which was you know I'd done three Saw movies. They they made a, a, you know a ton of money, and I could have continued on making studio films, making more Lionsgate movies, and making whatever. But I wanted to do something that spoke to me as an artist, not again the, the uh, 
something that wasn't safe. And I think to me, that's what excites. That's why I like Jim Jarmusch or David Lynch. You look at these movies and you're just like, what the hell? Like, how did they get this made? Uh, and Terry Gilliam as well. You're like, what? what is this? And I love that. And so for me, I had to make Repo. I had to do something that was so bad shit out there, so crazy, so insane, so dangerous. I think that was a dangerous. I remember when I said I wanted to put Paris in it, the kind of reactions. Are you crazy? Are you insane putting Paris Hilton in this? And I was like singing with Sarah Brightman and Paul Servino. And just the, the, the look of bewilderment on people's faces. Those are the type of movies that inspire me the most. Because there's just that complete what-the-fuck factor. Well, yeah. And, and you know, when we uh, when Rob was doing Corpses, and, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Because I, I was... I was doing a, I, I did um, this TV show a couple days ago, Ridiculousness. I was a guest on the show, Ridiculousness, this MTV show. And I was wearing a Captain Spaulding shirt, and a dude from the audience was like, fucking Captain Spaulding! And I love that. Yeah. And, and Ram and I talk about this all the time. He's like, that movie just needed to percolate over time, because when we made it, obviously it had, there were issues, it took a yeah. couple years before it came out. But it was not well-reviewed. Like, yeah. people were not kind about it. This was a pre-social media era. Yeah. But people were not kind about it in 2003, 2002, 2003, whenever it came out. Yeah. And uh, But something about overtime, you know, like being on on demand, home video or whatever, it has now become like this cult, iconic, classic film t- in horror. And it did really did not feel like that at the yeah. time. And it's like, you know, sometimes things just need... Time to percolate. Well, Three from Hell is my most anticipated movie. I'm I mean, excited I, about I, it. I uh, and again, fanboying out. I sent Rob an email the other day, and I was just geeking out. I was like, "When can we see an edit? I need to see this thing." He's, <laughs> I think like, he's editing it now. Yeah. I know, uh, but yeah, it's it, and those are I think some of my favorite movies. Movies that were reviewed poorly when they first came out, but over time they find this amazing cult audience. I mean, my favorite, what got me into doing all of these kind of weird things was Rocky Horror, which is the epitome of that. Which is you know, it was a it was a failure, and then fans found it, and fans started shadow casting it, and now it's still in theaters. What, uh, forty years later? Yeah, uh, I, I just love that experience. I love seeing the fandom embrace something and make it their own. Well, I, and it and it happens like it it happened with Citizen Kane. Yeah, that it it was you know it uh, it my. Wife's great grandfather suppressed it for a while because uh, you know it wasn't uh, didn't uh, whatever. Yeah. But it but I read that it wasn't until it started airing on television like two decades later that people were like, oh, it turns out this is a masterpiece, yeah. you know. And it's like you just don't you just don't know, you know. For two decades, yeah. You think you make some? I mean, it's like we talk about. Oh, it took a few years, but it's like can you imagine waiting twenty years? No. Uh, well, I think we live in a culture now which even makes it harder because again, when I started making things, uh, and that wasn't that long ago, two thousand four. Um, Twitter, there were not Twitter warriors and Instagram and all these people that could could tear something down so rapidly and so quickly. Um, and have the access, like, you know, my cousin, I was looking at, not my cousin, my niece and nephew, I was on their Instagram yesterday and they almost have as many followers as I do. Now these are kids <laughs> in a high school and they have reach now. People have this social reach and, uh, it's a little demoralizing when, you know, you, 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 you work and you spend time to make a piece of art and then rapidly one person in one tweet that has a million and a half followers, 10 million followers, 50 million followers can, can break it down. Uh, but the, the flip side of that is you don't have a platform. You do a small movie and one person likes it with 1 million, 10 million, 50 million followers and puts it out there. And now all of a sudden you have an audience you didn't have. So yeah, it's a double-edged it, it's, sword. It is a little bit of a double-edged sword, but also it, uh, 
you know, as consumers, and I say we because I'm not, I, I don't think this is an us and them thing. I mean, like, we are, I feel like I'm, I'm just as much to blame as everyone else, but we're spoiled as consumers because we can get anything we want, whenever we want, however we want. And because our specific needs can be so distinctly met, thanks to, you know, recommendation algorithms or whatever it is, yeah. um, anything that is even like 1% off from what we want or expect yeah. it to be is like the fucking worst. You know, it's like we well, can't, we're spoiled. We're spoiled. We're spoiled. Do you know a battle that I, I, I was talking about to a, another filmmaker the other day, which I didn't realize as a filmmaker that would be such an issue for me is how movies are marketed. Because as a director, I make a film and then the movie goes to a distribution company and a foreign sales company and they put together assets to sell that movie. Sometimes they don't align, meaning the movie that I made and the way they're selling it is not the same thing. And so I've had a couple of films that were marketed in a completely different manner than what the actual movie was. So St. Agatha is being marketed as a raucous religious comedy? Exactly, exactly. It's, a feel good, it's the feel-good movie of the year. But you, so I'll give you an example. What happens is, is uh, I like sushi. Sushi's great. But if someone tells me they're taking me to a steak restaurant and we pull up and it looks like you know, uh, whatever, Ruth Chris Steakhouse, and I walk in, and they put sushi in front of me, I get angry. Sure. And I'm mad. I'm like, this is terrible. I, I, I have to hate this. It's not that I hated the food. It was not my expectations of what I was walking into. That's right. So, I, you know, I've, I've struggled with that a lot. I've had a couple of films that I look at the trailers and look at the posters, and they want to push the saw guy. It's the saw guy. So they'll pick the one image of, like, pain and suffering and put it up there, and they're like, boom, the director of Saw 2, 3, and 4 brings you a new experiment in terror. And I'm like, it's a rock opera. No one, there's nothing scary about this. <laughs> and then people walk in and they see Paris singing or they see whatever and they get mad. And it's not the film is bad. It's their expectations were not at all aligned with the way that it was told to them it was going to be. Well, that's that's very – and, you know, like I, I think uh, a way to describe this in a way that I think people instantly understand, it's like when you go to uh, – drink something that you think is like a Coke. Yeah. And it turns out that there's water in it. You spit it out. And it's the most disgusting yeah. one because your your brain was telling you you're about to have Coke. Like, what is this? Like, well, it's just water. On any yeah. other day, you would have liked this, but you just didn't. And the same is true with comedy where if people people don't really seem to understand that there are like subgenres of comedy. Yeah. And if you just go saying like, oh, I'm going to go see a comedy show. Yeah. And it's, you know, and you, you know, whatever, you like musical comedy and it's like and it's really wordy comedy you know then you're not going to be satisfied and so some of it is like doing a little bit of the work and research ahead of time to make sure like is this in the wheelhouse of stuff yeah. that I'm that I would like or you know or, or not like I took a year a year and a half off in between a, a couple of films and I did this insane crazy thing that's now my extreme passion is immersive theater um and I felt that I was becoming so desensitized by social media um, and distracted. Do you mean so, like Sleep No More? Just like Sleep No More. Yeah. We did um, – so I, I basically burnt out. I did like seven movies back to back to back and I was burnt out and I needed something new. So I started traveling and I was in New York and uh, I went to Sleep No More. And the first time I went, I hated it. And I, I, I posted something online and it wasn't a negative thing but it was something like – I think what I saw was cool, but I just didn't get it. And immediately there was a comment that said, uh, are you still in New York? And I responded, yes. And they said, come back tonight and let us show you the real sleep no more. And it was a girl who was a cosplayer that cosplayed Repo the Genetic Opera. And she was a costumer to sleep no more. So she takes me and she basically says, follow me and do what I do. And so she took me through and she would like push me in places. And those unlocked the one-on-ones. And so in one night, I had like 12 one-on-ones. And I walked out of sleep no more shaking. I felt like I saw true art. I actually saw something that I didn't understand. And I went back the next night and the next night. 
And then it led me for like a year going to these different immersive experiences all over the world. Uh, and so I opened one in 2016 called the Tension Experience, which was a year-long ARG. Uh, an ARG, for those who don't know, is an alternate reality game. And it started with, we, we put up a website, and the website was very generic, and it had, it had Crowley quotes on it, and it had Manson quotes, and it had really like, like disturbed individuals' quotes. But if you played around with the quotes, you would see glitches in the website. And if you went up and looked at the source code, it led to a phone number on like the bottom page of the source code, and it just said, help me. <laughs> I already love this. Yeah. So only like five <laughs> people found the source code in the first week. And we had an actor that we hired that had a cell phone, a burner on them, that they had to answer it 24-7. They were paid to answer the phone 24-7. <laughs> and so the first five people called. They got the, they got the message. The person answered. And the person said, write this down immediately and repeat it back to me. And we gave an address to a warehouse. And they said, repeat it back. And then we'd said, Saturday at 10 a.m. The next person called and we'd say, Saturday at 10.30. And next thing we knew, when this got passed around online and read it, we had hundreds of people calling the cell phone. And uh, we took a warehouse out. We hired actors. And no one knew it was me doing it. We Every time I would cast someone or hire them, it was done online with a fake name. And they were sent burner cell phones. They could only talk to me through a burner cell phone. And uh, long story short... By the end of the first month, we had hundreds and hundreds of people in L.A. doing this thing. And it lasted an, almost an entire year where we would send you all over United, I mean, all over L.A., going to alleyways, bars, getting in weird vans, being taken to warehouses. And then it eventually led to a site-specific three-and-a-half-hour, 50,000-square-foot immersive experience. Uh, and what was amazing about it, what I loved about it, was it forced you to be present. We, When you walked in the event... We took your cell phones from you. There was no cell phones. And we forced you into uncomfortable situations with strangers where you had to talk to them and be there with them and actually communicate with them. And it was the most creatively amazing thing that I've ever been a part of. Well, that's an experience. You're basically giving people an experience. It is. And I think that what was great about it is uh, the how I was able to connect with an audience. Because if you if you do a movie like St. Agatha or Repo or Saw, you have 90 minutes, 100 minutes to try to get them to care about people to give to give a shit about what's going on while they're checking Twitter and Instagram and because they're probably what, watching it on their phone right so, yeah, yeah yeah so with this you some of these people spent nine months with these characters going to bars drinking with them being in car rides with them and then eventually going to this warehouse for three and a half hours detached from all their devices and forced to oh wait that just registered with me what you just said so for months. People were living as these characters, and the experience didn't happen for almost a year. A year, yeah. That's insane! So imagine if Sleep No More went on. So if you wanted to go to Sleep No More, but you had to spend nine months before going to Sleep No More, meeting the characters, getting to know them. Because you have to go to a place to go, to do Sleep yeah. No More. You know, it doesn't just, yeah. like, it's over once you leave. Yeah, this does not, this never ends. It Holy shit! It hasn't ended yet. We started in 2016. We've done, uh, every year we've done a new one. So the first one was the Tension Experience. The second year was the lust experience and it was if you could walk into Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. So we took over this place and it was a sex party and you had to figure out there was a cult operating in sex magic and the in the like uh, uh, shadows of this sex club and you had to go in, you had to wear masquerade masks and it was all based on your decisions. What would happen to you? It was two and a half hours long. No two people got the same experience. Um, and then we just finished one. We just closed it called Theater Macabre, which was my favorite. It was basically 12 separate storylines. Each storyline lasted two hours, and you went in groups of 10. So that meant every person that went in got a completely – you never see each other. You'd walk in, and you were a killer, or you were a politician, or you were a prostitute, or you were a drug dealer. And for two and a half hours, you had your own storyline. 
So, oh my god. Yeah. That's incredible. And so are you going to do another one? We are. We're working on the next one right now. Um, the Russo brothers that did uh, the Avengers movie yes, of course. just partnered with us on the Tension Experience brand and taking us to Vegas to do it at a casino. Uh, so they, they came. They were big fans of like the there's Tension. there's not enough tension in Vegas. I know. I know. <laughs> They're uh, just walking in and hearing... And like hearing bachelorette parties and to go to, people throwing everywhere. I've had to go to Vegas a couple of times in the last few months with this, and it, it's it's bad. Like now my butt will clenches every time I walk into the <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's great. I mean, the Russos are elevating us to a different platform, but they were huge supporters and fans. They came in, they saw what, they, what we did, and uh, they partnered with us on it. And I think that's, you know, and this is where you're, you're, like, the real artist part of you is really thriving because I think people are, when we talk about how so many experiences are not material experiences, yeah. they're, they're digital experiences, and I think people crave, we as human animals crave yeah. To feel things in the real world, real experience, real interactions. I mean, even yeah. though it's all fake, but I just mean like interactions in the real world. And I, I mean, this to me, it's not surprising that this is something that is starting to scale up and expand because I people are just desperate to have real world stuff. Well, it was great. Um, so once tension closed and we did another one of them, I got a phone call from Neil Patrick Harris's husband. And oh, said, David. David Burke. David. And he calls me and he's like, hey, don't tell Neil. I want to do something special for his birthday. Could you fuck with him? 24 hours. And <laughs> They're uh, the fucking best. Uh, they are. And so basically, I mean, I know Neil pretty well now. And uh, so we, my, my, my partner, Clint Sears and Gordon Bijelanik and I, who are the creators of this thing, put together the game. It was literally the game. It was 24 hours. Neil had no idea. He woke up. And there was a man standing in the foyer of his house. Jesus and, Christ! And uh, we we tailored it to Neil's you know likes. It was about a, it was about this old magician that was going to give him the final trick, but he had to do these things throughout the day. And one of my favorite things we did for him was uh, Neil had a pre scheduled uh, lunch that he was doing with some friends. We found out where the lunch was going to be, and we hired about fifty extras, and they all were there eating when Neil walks in. So everyone's eating, they're having their food. Neil sits down. And he's having his lunch, and at the exact same moment, they all got a text, and they all stood up at the exact same time, stared at Neil, and pointed to a door. And the door led to an alleyway. And Neil had to wake up, he had to stand up, go to this alleyway. And at the back of the alleyway, it's a huge alleyway, we had an old TV from the 80s and a VHS in it. And there was this magician watching Neil's first televised magic act. But uh, there's something what's great about that is it's tangible, and it's something that it, it imprints itself on you because you're not watching something. You're not passively sitting back. You're engaged. You're a part of you're, it. Yeah. You, you are the you are the person that is narrating the story. So I, I think that you're going to see more and more of these throughout the years. Yeah, it's funny. It's like it's like weird. So you know, people talk about VR, and to me, AR is much more exactly. I feel the same way. You know, like what, whether it's AR applications or ARG yeah. stuff, but I also just knowing. You know, because I've been, I've been to the, I've been to the Neil birthday party thing before yeah. when they yeah. lived in L.A. And uh, you know, it's just like there's jugglers and fire eaters and acrobats oh, yeah. and stuff. I mean, like I can't think of anything. I'm so jealous of Neil and David's kids that they get to be oh, Neil and David's kids. Like to to grow up in a house of that much like mystery and magic and and wonder and fantasy. Like it sounds so. They should just adopt me. I live vicariously through his Instagram and just watching with those. I mean, like, it's uh, it's crazy. 
And he said, you know what's great about Neil is he's such a he's such a kid. Like he was in town the other week and, and But not in a shitty way, like no. in the best Well he called me, he goes, Let's go. He goes, I'm in town for twelve hours, let's go do escape rooms. And like you're in, I don't know if you've done an escape room with yeah. Neil. Oh no. But it is it is literally like the most high energy pushing people away, like we gotta solve this, we gotta do this. Oh look over there, jump and like it just he's 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 energetic in a way that makes again, it makes me feel like a child as well watching him. So um I, I think that uh as a, as a career at this point, like it'll be fifty percent doing movies, and the other fifty percent will be this experimental stuff, this this theater, this these experiences, because that's what we. I mean, when we go to dinner, when we go out and spend this money to buy an expensive bottle of wine, whatever, we're looking for an experience. We're looking to step outside of our real world and have something. But imagine instead of watching James Bond, I make you James Bond. Instead of watching Saw, I put you in Saw. And I think that that, to me, is, is just an exhilarating idea. Well, I'm going to pitch instead of 50-50, 45-45, and then 10% is just making sure that your son Henry is not oh, yeah. being led around by a possessed serial by, killer by doll. A, by a serial killer doll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just 10%. 10%. Just to make sure it's 10%. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it is kind of funny that you're, the stuff that you do, you have to... <laughs> you, with your kids, it's like, well... I can't really show you what daddy does for a while, but just know that it is a, I do go do a thing, but He's I just been on set and it's, it's really cute watching him on set. I brought him to set when I was in Tokyo and then I brought him on set this last movie in St. Agatha, which is coming out. Uh, and it is his eyes get really big and he asks a million questions. And, it, and it's so cute because he's so innocent. And so like he was on set and it was after a, someone was brutally murdered. Uh, and, uh, I didn't mean for him to go into this room, but he sees all it. He goes, Daddy, why is there paint everywhere? And I was like, we're painting the room, Henry. And it's just so cute. <laughs> like, okay, I got it. Uh, so, yeah. You know what, though? I think your kids will appreciate that. And, and, and actually, ultimately, will probably be boring to them. Or you're going to see a front page in a couple of years, Henry, the real portrait of a serial killer, and it's... it's That's possible, but I doubt it. Because yeah. I, I think they just get, they'll just get desensitized to it, and they'll rebel against whatever, you know, whatever you're into. They'll have to rebel as teenagers. And well, it so. makes me want to make a kid's movie, though. That's the one thing I've realized, is that I want to make something like a Goonies-like thing for... Well, the, I think that some of the best kids' movies had a layer of macabre they underneath did. it. Goonies absolutely did. And, we, you know, like, whether it be Dark Crystal yeah. or, you know... And, and and some of the older uh, some of the older kids movies are, are fucking are dark. Yeah. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is absolutely. dark. It absolutely is dark. And so it him and the boat ride in the tunnel. Is yes, it's even today is terrifying sequence. Yes, so it's like that 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 under that under you know what's underneath there is is uh, I don't know. I, I feel like we're losing that because it's so much like. Well, you know, everything's so subgenre specific. Well, this is specifically for kids. This is specific. It's like, yeah. yeah, but there was a time when adults and kids could watch the same stuff and not and and both could be satisfied. I had a really uh, intense experience that I was not expecting. I, I, Henry loves one of our favorite thing we do is we go to Legoland and he can ride every ride at Legoland and it's great. But we went to Universal Studios. He loves the Minions. And we live near Universal Studios. And he can always see what he says, the big Minion. There's a huge Minion peeking over a parking lot. And you can see it from our house. So he asked if he can go to Universal. We go to Universal. He does all the stuff. He does Harry Potter. He does the Minion rides. He loves it. And as we're leaving, there's the, there's the tram. And there's no height restriction. There's no age restriction. And I haven't been on the tram in years. So I was like, let's do the tram. I've never seen fear like I saw on the tram when Henry saw 
not only Jaws, but mm-hmm. Godzilla. Yep. And and even today, which is a year and a half after I took him there, a year later, why did you take me to see, not Godzilla, King Kong, why did you take me to see King Kong? Why did you take me to see King Kong? <laughs> and I, I felt so bad because everyone in the tram, like he was shaking and he was crying. And I was like, oh, dude, maybe this was a really bad decision on my part. You uh, just don't know because there's also a reality that exists where he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, I know. And that's what I – in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, he's going to love it. And it's also now it's projected. It's not like a real – it's not a real King Kong. He's just – he's not going to understand why in like 15 years he's going to be on a date seeing a, pl- a Planet of the Apes movie and he's going to uh, just uncontrollably shit his pants. He's, he's not going to remember not why. He's, he's not <laughs> uh, <laughs> Have you done the Boo Crew podcast? No. Uh, it's this. It's great. It's great. It's basically a horror themed podcast, and this guy named Trevor does it that we know, and he lives in a house that is like sometimes when you'll come see our house, and there's a lot of like fun stuff around. But right. he has actually built. First of all, he has like a is carousel. That, in is it L.A.? It's in L.A. It's in like a normal looking neighborhood, normal looking house, and you go inside. And immediately it's like there's all this like he's recreated this Harry Potter rooms and the his, the studio is a, a secret bookcase and he has a fucking oh, carousel that. in his living room and he's got mirrors that that when you walk by like ghosts start animating on them it's incredible and they're so nice and it's such a great podcast and they're you know it's a great it's a really great horror podcast and I think you, I think you would oh love my it. god it's, the boo yeah, crew. it's called the boo crew yeah okay, yeah excellent. you should do it but Lydia did it um, last year and uh, and they they were so sweet and so wonderful that sounds great yeah uh, yeah they would have a lot to talk to you about uh, speaking of talking about stuff Saint Agatha. The movie, the movie, which is out, I believe. Uh, it's out when, today. When, yes, it's out today. Um, it was. Uh, it's crazy. I didn't. I don't know if there's something subconsciously that I'm dealing with my own kind of uh, shit in my brain, but I keep doing religious things. Did you go to Catholic school? I did not. You did not go to because I did go to Catholic did you? school. Yeah, and we did not. We didn't have sadistic nuns. You did not have sadistic nuns. No, well, no, no, no. The one of the writers, uh, Sarah Michaels, uh, did go to Catholic school, and she talks about the horrors that befell her. Now, obviously, not necessarily what we do in this movie, but uh, it's crazy because I when they when they presented me with the script, they just told me to Google. They said Google some of what this talks about, and it was basically these horrific stories of these forced adoptions that took place in inside convents mm-hmm. where young girls would would come in there, and the nuns would convince them that your child is better off not with you, and in the loving arms of a family that could take care of them. That they were selling them to. They were selling them, and or they were getting donations for them, donations back to the church, right? Um, and so it just seemed like a, a really cool intro into a, a movie like this. And I don't know if I would call St. Agatha a horror. It's uh, dark and sinister and fucked up. It's a fucked up psychological yeah. thriller. Yeah, with, with some gory, gory... Uh, it's a nun up. thriller. So, yeah, nunsploitation is what they're saying. Uh, which Nunsploitation. Uh, nunsploitation. Uh, yeah. It already started this morning. I've already started getting some hate mail from, from religious groups about... Can't you find other topics to do? This Can't you find other movies to watch? Yeah, I know. That? That's, that's a great... That's yeah. Great. yeah. What, what if you... That one? It's like, I, you know, there are certain types of... Sh- like, there's certain reality shows I don't like, so I just don't watch don't, them. Don't watch them too Because long. I don't... Uh, yeah. Like, why, why would I... Just so I could get mad. But you know what's... It's funny. And, and by the way, let me just... I don't mean yeah. to interrupt you, but I, this is really... Yeah. This, this really gets under my craw. That's not a real saying, but I just... I went with it anyway. We'll make it. We'll make it yeah, this is really under my craw. But it's like... You're not it, uh, like a very specific genre movie like this. People aren't 
they don't watch that on the fence about the church. Yeah. And then go, I was really on the fence before I watched this movie, but you know what? Now I'm against it. It's like, exactly. you, you're, you, this is for a specific audience, people who have the presence of mind to separate, like, you know, what's real, what's not real, what may have happened in the past, what's going, like, it's not, it just, you, you know, again, you're, it's, it's, it's not, you're, you're not con- converting people to, to, to pick at the church. No, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, you know what though? It's actually it's actually good because anytime people do this, it just brings more attention to it, which means we sell more downloads. Uh, but uh, it, it, all you have to do is Google it, like, and that's I think that's the other thing. It's it's that I'm not making things up. I'm not trying to to take down a church. It's no, and, of and it's not even that even it's not even really based in religion. It's a story about a girl who horrors befall her in this house. I mean, that's that's what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a unique one. We. Uh, I got this movie right after I was telling you about the immersive experience, but uh, I, I love trying to find new talent. And I love giving people opportunities in the same way that I was able to direct Saw 2 at 25. I never directed shit before Saw 2, literally nothing, but someone took a chance on me. The lead actress of the tension experience was this girl named Sabrina Kern, who plays St. Agatha in this. What's insane about this is that when I met her, uh, she had just moved to LA from Switzerland. She was, so she speaks Swiss German and, uh, I had no, no idea. I, neither did I. And so she meets me. I had no idea. And throughout the entire tension experience, she's talking to me about how do I get involved in movies? What would I do? How would I do this? And I credit the success of the tension experience to her. The whole idea of the tension experience is you're trying to find this girl, Sabrina, and bring her out of a cult and return her to her family. And so she's the lead. Everyone, and we put her in some insane positions, like showing up to people's houses in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. and making them get in cars with her. And she drives you to someplace. And so she was such a trooper and the script literally was put into my bag without my knowledge. One of the line producers knew that I hate reading scripts and I just don't do it. People send me scripts. I just, I have a, I have a, a really hard time by my attention. And I, one day I got home and there's a script in my bag called St. Agatha. And, uh, I just cracked it open and read the first five pages. And it was about this young girl that, uh, you know, ends up having to go to a convent in the late fifties, in the late fifties. Uh, and, and immediately I was like, I want to bring my tension cast with me. And so we ended up making a deal. And they let me bring about seven or eight of the main players of the experiences, the tension experience. And we, it was the quickest turnaround. We, I was offered it in like December and I was shooting it at the end of January. Oh, wow. So it was a very, very quick turnaround into doing it. And it's crazy because Sabrina, English is her second language. I have not mastered English yet. I've been here 40 years. <laughs> and I don't hear her accent at all. I, d- I, had, uh, no, I had no idea. And that was her first movie, which is also crazy. And I'm, I'm excited for her because uh, she started getting reviews. And that's always... I warned her at the very beginning. That she, I was like, listen, this is a huge thing. You're going from never been in a movie before to being the English-speaking lead in a movie with your name on it. And I was like, are you ready for this? Because I, at that time, we were doing this Abattoir. Another film of mine just came out. I was getting just right through the coals critic wise and she was part of this and she saw it and I was like there was a there was a headline it was tearing apart one of the actors in Abattoir and I was like you have to have a thick skin if you're going to carry the movie you have to be prepared for this and it's great in the last two days all the reviews have started to hit and like LA Times Hollywood Reporter they're calling her out by name by like a stand-up performance by Sabrina Kern so I'm just so excited oh for that's her. so nice yeah it's great do you have a thick skin? Like, no, when, like <laughs> not at all. I, I cry myself to sleep every night with a bottle of whiskey. Uh, I, I would like to say I do, but I don't. I think that um, I was actually uh, on a on a podcast the other day, and they were talking. Do I read reviews? I would like to say I don't, and I would like to say I don't care about them, but I, I do. I care what people say. 
Because you know what it is? My mom has a Google alert on me. Mm. And I want to know what my mom is reading because my mom is the she's – a, she's a Midwest Norman Rockwell archetype. That's who she is. And so I, I don't know how many times she's called me crying about, did you read what Deadline said? How dare they? Oh, and it's, no. It's, that's so heartbreaking. I know. I know. So uh, I try to get ahead of everything. But uh, – I wish I didn't have to. I wish I didn't. But I, I'm a masochist. I want to. I, I do. Uh, I think the older I've gotten, I've no lear- I've learned how to deal with the negativity, and I kind of laugh at it. There was a there was a review that came out yesterday. They gave it zero stars, and it said, it <laughs> says, it says this movie is an abomination of a film. Uh, and it was like there was not one nice thing I could say about it. It was like literally five sentences, and it said zero out of ten. And I was just like, that, I retweeted it. I was like, that's awesome. Good for you, dude. Like, that made me happy. Like, five years ago, me would have cried. But now I just retweet it. I think it's funny. But it's also like, if someone, who listen, if someone hates something, then it made them feel an emotion. Yeah, and maybe, exactly. there, maybe there's something there. I just don't know. I mean, again, you know, like, I'm sure the ones that are there, like, well, don't, don't put stuff out there. You can't take it. And it's like, yeah, but you know that people... To get attention for themselves are trying to be as mean as they can because yeah. that's engaging to audiences. It's one thing to say, I didn't like this movie. Here are the reasons why. Yeah. I didn't feel the story made sense or I didn't like this or I didn't like this. That's fine. It's not that artists can't take criticism. Yeah. It's just that no one wants to be treated like shit. And, and, and it's very hard for people to understand or like... I just expressed my opinion like yeah. yeah but you said the guy was a fucking should get lit on fire like that's not the same yeah. you know you know what I think it is it's when they turn personal that affect me it's like if you want to critique the movie or say you hate it fine it's the personal attacks which I always have a problem with because again I, I just picture my mom reading those things yeah uh, but I think you have to have a thick you have to have a thicker skin if you're going to be in this industry um you know, I've said this in the past, and I, you know, the majority of my life, I'm a failure. I fail nine times out of ten. Uh, I get fired off jobs. I script that don't sell. I get uh, spend years working on something that falls apart. But then I have that one percent that I succeed at. I get saw two, uh, and then I have ninety nine failures, and I get saw three. And so you spend as a as a creator so much of the time being told no, but you just need that one percent. And so I think that. You kind of have a thick skin because you have to understand the word no. Yeah. Uh, and you know when I when I came here from film school, I came here with a bunch of people that were much more talented than myself, much better filmmakers than me. That gave up, that went home, that couldn't deal with the the anguish and, and uh, depression of being said no. We're not going to buy the screenplay. Or, hey, your short film's terrible. I just stuck with it. I got kicked in the balls, you know, ninety nine times, but that hundredth kick in the ball. Was the one that uh, that ended up. They only caught me. one ball. Yeah, I still the have, time, they only I have no balls ball. left, but uh, <laughs> they just keep kicking. They, they keep kicking them. But but I think that's important, and that's an important lesson. That's an important lesson to learn too. I I I um I was watching a video uh about I was watching a video about I've been taking piano lessons. Oh. And I, and I was watching a video like a TED talk about a woman who was talking about how she reads music like this master pianist about how she reads music and she had the slideshow and she showed a uh she showed a a web comic from something called foul language comics which is f-o-w-l foul language comics.com and it's this it's on the one panel says how to be an artist and it's a duck and it says dance barefoot believe in magic be free and then how to be a good artist work longer harder and be more dedicated than those magical barefoot <laughs> posers <laughs> and the duck is yeah, just like right. hey so it is you know like it's it the the so, you know someday years from now when they look back, you know, they'll probably remember the good stuff. And the stuff yeah. that didn't land as well was just part of the process. But it's all 
it's just it's all part of the journey. Well, I, I think for me it, as well. I, the other thing I do try to read critiques for is that you you got to look that if if ten people say the same thing, then mm-hmm. that probably means there's something wrong. Uh, if one person says something, I can blow it off. If two people say I can blow it off, but when you see a consistent thing, and I think I've grown as a filmmaker because you look at some of them. And like an example is in Saw, I cared about the gimmicks. I cared about the gore and the violence and the cool shots. Well, you see that you see 10 reviews. It was like all he cares about the gore and left characters aside. So when I did Saw 3, I said, let's focus on the characters. Let's let's put the gimmicks behind. Let's have the characters be in front. That's the constructive relationship yeah. to have. Exactly. And so I think you've got to look past the name calling and the like pros and words that they use to say it and say, what are they really trying to say? Can I improve that on the next one? Well, again, and I think at the core of it, where a lot of the negativity can really come from, like when you separate it from the critique, is that if someone watches something and they don't like it if they there's just a lot of like i feel bad and now i want you to feel bad and that's not the same thing as like that's just oh like you didn't personally set out to ruin someone you made a thing it affected them the way they have every right to have whatever opinion be affected however they're going to be affected but then to turn around and be like now i'm going to make you feel bad or uh, either because of that or for attention i just my, my my hope is that um I don't know. It'd be great if there was a site that was just like, we're just going to, these are just very clinical, like, uh, uh, like unflashy review reviews of things, you know? Well, you know, it's funny. And I was wondering, I'm sure there is a site like this and I don't know because it's definitely not Rotten Tomatoes, but have (laughs) genre people review genre movies. Meaning like there was a review that was, I'm, I'm luckily, at least before I came in here, still certified fresh. Uh, but I saw right when I came in, my fresh score went down a little bit. And I clicked on it, and this woman starts, and she goes, let me preface this review by I hate horror. That, that was how the review started. And I'm like, why are you, <laughs> why are you here? Why are you, why are you weighing in on this? So I think that would be a really cool thing is is that you have a, a council, or whatever you want to call it, of 20 horror critics, and they love horror. They love horror. Have them review the horror films. If you look comedy, do that. Because I think it's, it's, a, it's an unfair thing if you have some housewife from the Midwest, it's a Christian, like, do-gooder, that's like, I love family films, and I'm going to review this, and I'm going to tell well, you that's, how. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes, particularly for horror, Liddy and I say all the time, is, can be wildly inconsistent. Like, yeah. you'll see, like, some things will get, like, a 90%, and you'll watch it, and you'll go, what the fuck? And yeah. then other movies turn out to be gems. Yeah. And they're only, uh, you know, they get, like, 40%. Yeah, I know. And uh, so that's why it'd be interesting. I'm sure there is a site like this, but just, well, I guess there are. I mean, the Bloody Disgustings or the Fangorias that, that, that are those horror sites. But I mean like a bigger conglomerate site that does review all the movies. But if you're going to review a horror movie, you at least acknowledge that you appreciate the genre. Right. Not give it to someone that hates the genre and you know you're going to get a splat. Right, right, right. Well, you were on the podcast maybe eight years yeah, ago. Yeah, a while. I mean, I think it might have been in the first year yeah. or two. Maybe 2011. Yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, it was such a delight to, to have you back. And uh, and I so appreciate... It's great I, back. I just... I love... I love what you're doing and I love your... You have such a good heart and I love how passionate you are about hearing you talk about immersive ex- theater experiences. I'm and like, here, I, just, I didn't even realize I had this until I got here, but you can have this too. This is uh, this is the the coffee table book on the first year of the ARG and it talks about how we Oh, that's it. fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is great. Neil actually writes the intro in the beginning of it, so you can... That's it, really cool. Well, thank you for having me back. Thank you, Darren Lynn Bozeman. And I'm going to be moving into this house, just to let you know. Just take be the caretaper. I'll yeah, be the yeah, caretaker yeah. You, you can be yeah. the caretaker. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I invite you. Oh, and when we as we end the podcast, 
Just uh, one piece of directing advice. Just give me one piece of directing advice. One piece of directing advice. That you wish someone had told you. Um, here, here's what I wish I knew back. You have to believe in whatever you're creating more than any other person. And you have to be its biggest advocate and the one that fights for it the most. I have so many people that have given me their scripts. And they're like, yeah, it's not great. But I, I think I get this thing made. I'm willing to lose my career over any movie that I do. When I set off to do a movie like Repo the Genetic Opera, I realized at that point I could lose everything. Like I was turning down a payday, I was turning down whatever, but it was a story that I had to tell. So I think that when you're setting off to make your first movie or your second or your third, make it a story only you can tell. You're the best person to tell that story because if someone next to me can tell the same story that I would, I shouldn't do it. So that's 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 probably what I'd have to say. That's a great piece of advice of just about being invested in the thing yeah. and making – because that's how you make it personal. Well, you, you look at the, is that any of these movies, St. Agatha, I'll end on this note, is that it took a year and a half for St. Agatha to came, come out. And I was attached to it from the to, to when I got the script until it came out. It's not a quick thing. You don't turn it around in three months and it's done. Some movies take years to come out, and you have to be willing to champion and fight for it and do interviews and posts and whatever that is for years and years and years. Uh, no one's going to do it outside of you. You have to be the biggest champion for the material. Uh, it's the only way it's going to get seen. So you gotta you got to be in it for the long haul. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you. It's so good to see I, you. I hope you do the movie because I would love to see. Uh, I would love to see your take on whatever. Well, I really hope that I, because I I have an appreciation for how hard it is to make things, and so I'm not. I don't watch things with a shitty eye yeah. in the sense of like, oh, what the fuck, like yeah. you know, like now I know enough to know like maybe they yeah. lost light that day, maybe an actor didn't yeah. show up, it's a low budget horror movie, maybe yeah. this set, maybe they didn't have the money to do, you know, so. It'll be interesting to see if the areas where I do, when I do critique stuff, if it's like, oh, that's why it's hard yeah. to dot, dot, dot. So we'll see. I don't know. All right. Until next time. Thank you, Darren. Yes. Thank you, guys. The end. You've just listened to the ID10T podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Number 987 with Darren Lynn Bowsman. It is time for Word Salad Wrap. And uh, I think it kind of makes sense to sort of build off what Darren was talking about at the end of the podcast with, um, you know, when it comes to directing, you know, just make sure that you're passionate about the thing that you're working on. You know, and maybe not so much like, man, I could probably make that work. I mean, listen, if you are a person who can make anything work, fine. But let's just kind of zero in on that a little bit and talk about uh, talk about passion. Um, passion uh, in and of itself is not going to fix your life, but it's a good – in as much as being able to start a fire isn't going to solve every problem you have, you know, in the winter. Yes, you can start a fire, but you got to keep it going, you know. You have to figure out how to maintain it. But let's just talk about passion for a second because that's the drive and that's the spark. And also it's it's the kick in the pants to kind of get you to figure out what it is that you want to do. Maybe you don't even know what you want to do, you know. You ask people what do they want and they go, I don't know, more, something, I don't know. And so – 
maybe let's talk a little bit about exercises that might kind of help you unlock some of your passion. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in that if you can see it, you can believe it. <laughs> Did I say that right? I just mean, look, you have a lot of thoughts and things running around in your head all day, just running around like chickens in a pen. And it can be very difficult when you're trying to manage all those to really think clearly. And so, you know, if you take the basic principles of the old uh, kind of getting things done mentality, it's just get everything out onto paper into the physical world. And so, you know, if you don't know, I mean, everyone's passionate about something. If, if, if you want to make some kind of a change in your life, you know, you need to figure out what it is that you want. Um, and if you know what you're passionate about, you can, that can kind of lead you to ultimately what you want and how to get there and where you're going and stuff. So, but if you're a person who's just like, I don't fucking know. I just, I, yeah, I don't know. I just want something. Just experiment with writing, writing stuff down. You may not solve it the first time, but just sit down. Take 15 minutes even, 10 minutes, 5 minutes. Write down things that, you're pa- things that you enjoy. Write down things that you, th- you know you're good at. Write down things you think you might be good at. Write down things you think you'd want to learn that you might be good at. And then just start connecting the lines, connecting the dots. Because the more specific, the more specific your passion, uh, I, I think the kind of easier it is to envision and the more detailed it is, the, the, the more likely it is that you'll be able to achieve it. Because you'll get a crystal clear picture in your mind of what it is that you want. And, you know, it's, I'm not someone that just thinks you can just sit around and think everything into existence. Yes, you certainly can manifest things by thinking of them and picturing them, but you do have to take some action. So unless you know exactly what it is that you're passionate about, you're not going to know what action to take. So start connecting dots, start writing things that you're passionate about. You know, if, if you like baking and I don't know, D and D maybe figure out, is there something that you can do that involves you know, because because that's how you create new things that the world hasn't seen. Listen, the everyone is legitimately unique. You are a unique set of experiences. You are a unique. I don't want to say snowflake because it has a negative connotation now, but I mean everyone is different and everyone is unique. And so, the more unique you are, the more uniquely you you are, the less competition you have with anything else in the world. The more the more you can scoop out that innate uniqueness that you, through the experiences that you've been gifted in life, uh, have, have, then the more unique of an expression that's going to be and the more interested and interesting people are going to go, oh my God, that's inc- I never thought of doing it that way. Which, you know, when, I mean, when I was a kid, like I was really good at copying drawings. I used to copy the comics, you know, anyone else out there who draws, I'm sure that's how they started too. But at a certain point, you got to kind of develop your own thing. And I think for me, one of the reasons why I knew I wasn't really necessarily passionate pursuing art is because I just never really had like a really specific thing that I needed to say with drawing or painting. Um, And so that to me kind of said like, okay, well maybe comedy is, is, you know, this is more of a direction that I want to go in, but I was experimenting and you can experiment too. And you don't have to get it right the first time and you don't have to figure it out the first time. But as long as you're asking the right questions and as long as you're open to try to figuring it out and learning, I believe you're on the right path and it will come to you. 
And then once you figure that out, then, you know, we can have a whole other series of word salad wraps about, like, what to do once you figure it out. But you'll know because your body will tell you your gut is (laughs) – your gut knows more than your brain or at least your gut is more aware of a lot of things that the forefront of your conscious thought doesn't know. And so when you start tinkering around with ideas or connecting dots or writing stuff down – you will get like that butterfly excitement thing when you're in the area. It's like hot, 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 cold, 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 hot, 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 cold, hot, hot, cold, hot. You'll your body will tell you what your what excites you, and you'll feel it. Um, so just try that. Just experiment. Just ask yourself these good questions and write things down. Get them out of your head so that you can see them as a third-party observer because it's very difficult to have perspective on yourself when you're in your own head. Does that make any sense? (laughs) You have to be able to look at yourself and a way to do that is to put as much of yourself on paper so that you have that perspective. So, you know, I call it an assignment. I don't know if it's homework, but I just... If if you want more things in life, if you want to manifest more things in life, if you want to try new things in life or try different directions, this is a great first step at learning what you're passionate about so that you can hopefully pursue those passionate things and and build your, your life around them. Um, so I wish you the best. Uh, I do believe in you. I really do. Um, if, if you're listening to this and this has resonated with you even a little bit, I believe in you because you're asking questions. You're looking for new answers. And when you feel I, – I really believe when you feel the most stuck in life and when you feel the most weighed down and you feel the most like, ah, I don't know. I just feel uneasy. I think that is similar to right before – a butterfly bursts out of the cocoon. I really do feel like that's the, uh, you're just trying to shake that old, that old identity off or that old thing and burst out um, with a, with a transformation because you're looking for answers. And that's, I honestly, you know, like the times that I felt that in my life were just maybe coincidentally, but right before a breakthrough. So if you do feel that way, if you do feel uncomfortable, then, um, then uh, then I have I think I may have good news for you. So just uh, stay focused, um, go easy on yourself and uh, and I wish you all the best and I appreciate you and have a great uh, week, weekend, day. I never know what to say here. I literally after all this time, I don't know what to say because I don't know when you're listening to this. So um, whenever it is, yeah, that's how you sign off. <laughs> Uh, I'm not that passionate about endings. That's the problem. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker 
lied. Like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.